I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On this week's edition of Routine Checkup, we chat with Maddie Sherman, an occupational therapist who provides services to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities living in care. This is, uh, I'm excited for this because we are going to be talking about Brian's favorite profession that he missed his calling for. Yes. All of our OG hardcore listeners know what that is. We're going to be talking about occupational therapy. Which yes. I, which like, you know, I feel like we've been, we, we've talked about at length, yet it's still that thing that like we could come back and talk about it time and time again because it is such a multifaceted, layered, use, yeah. complex, amazing, amazing job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is the thing that I like about it. Right. Is that it yeah. like you're just using problem solving skills to like help make people's lives better. Totally. And it can be applied in so many different ways. It's so cool. So uh, we're joined by Maddie today. Hello, Maddie. Hello. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Thank you for having me. And, um, one of the one of the things I'm really excited to talk to you about is uh, I guess we'll talk about your your application process of get, coming on the show because you, you've applied. I was wondering if you're going to out me or not. <laughs> you've applied a couple of times, and uh, and the last time you applied was actually after we had um, we had discussed on a Feel Good Friday episode. We were discussing uh, the the sort of ins and outs. I mean, not that we know fucking jack shit about it, but we were just like discussing people with dementia and Alzheimer's and like sexuality and consent and like, how do those things work? You know, if your partner has, you know, late onset dementia and they've now kind of lost touch with who you are and, and, you know, but like, so you know, what, like, how do you, how do you work around consent? How do you work around sex with your partner? If they've, if they've um, gotten to a point where they, they don't see the world the way that they used to. And you applied and you were like, you guys think that shit's interesting. <laughs> well, I work with people with intellectual disabilities as an OT and sexuality in that space is really fascinating. And also something that doesn't get talked about. Absolutely. A lot. Also like the, and I mean, from my perspective as somebody who um, for a while was teaching yoga to people with intellectual disabilities, um, I find that they could oftentimes be like very sexual, like hypersexual and also um, sometimes not like uh, like would would not really be aware of like social cues in terms of like what was OK and what was OK to say and what was not. Um, so I'm really curious about this area because, you know, um, yeah, I guess that's that's a really interesting aspect about it is like how do 
what does consent look like yeah. in that space? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into that, maybe let's get a little bit of context, <laughs> Maddie. Um, so well, we just want to dive right I, into I, it. I mean, I do, I do. But I, I want to get to know Maddie first. You know, I want to know, uh, Maddie, uh, I guess, like, I, the first thing is, um, what what was it that drew you to this work? You know, having said that, it's such a, like, such a interesting um, job. Uh, what What part of it was the thing that, like, made you want to become an occupational therapist sure um my husband says i tell really long stories so great (laughs) so do i so (laughs) he's always like uh let's get to the point here (laughs) um so i will try my very best to make this quick but i'll I'll give you my backstory because i think it will kind of make a lot more sense um and like brian you're involved in that because you we kind of met when i was working for special olympics which is a big big part of this Mm -hmm. um so yeah, it all, the journey kind of started back in, it would have been, I guess, 2014 when I had a coaching class in my kinesiology degree and ended up doing Special Olympics Active Start Fundamental Sport Program as my like pl- practicum for uh, teaching the coaching course. And I had really no experience working with individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities before then. Not totally sure, honestly, why that seemed to just be the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and I just loved it. Like it was so fun. I had such a good time. Um, and kids aren't really my thing. I love kids. I, I want children, but I don't love working with children. So I was like, okay, well maybe not active start fundamentals. And they needed a board member. The Halifax region needed a, a board member for special Olympics. So I got into that. Um, at the same time I was kind of graduating from my undergrad and was going into occupational therapy thinking that my passion with OT was, uh, wheelchairs, which it still is. Mm -hmm. I love, I love wheelchairs and seating. Um, and so at that point, these two things were like very separate ideas to me. Like I loved working with special Olympics and I wanted to be an OT, um, throughout OT school still really had no idea how to like meld these two things together. There's OTs that work in early intervention for children with autism at the IWK and other children's hospitals. Um, But that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And so I graduated OT school in 2018 and took a job with a like major health service, private health services provider and doing return to work and was like, wow, this is this is not for me at all um, and needed to find a change. So I was looking and I was like, okay, at this point, this was really when I was like, how can I meld these two things together? I was still really Ooh. heavily involved in Special Olympics um, and wanting to kind of be able to meld these two things together. And I came across a bit like the beautiful thing about OT, Bri, for you, um, is that you can do so many different things. Like you don't people kind of think maybe like hospital return to work is a very kind of quintessential occupational not, therapy. Right. Yeah. Not to like, not to like be mean about <laughs> return to work, but like that kind of seems like the boring part of being an OT. Like, Oh, Brian, like, here we go. You know, <laughs> fucking, like, here come to, the emails, dude. Not, John, John's going to jump down your throat. I mean, Fuck. I understand how it could be like how it's important and how it could be a really meaningful job to help people do that. But like, of all the cool things you can do, like, <laughs> fuck, I'm, uh, am I, am keep I, digging. Just am no, I no, digging no, a hole? Keep digging, keep digging. 
not and not to put you on the spot and and hear your no, thoughts no, on no, that, no, but no, like no. I mean, you said you started with return to work. Like, were you thinking like, hey, maybe there's some cooler, maybe cool isn't the right <laughs> word. <laughs> not um, to throw you under the bus. Tell us how you but, really feel. <laughs> no, it certainly was not for me, and I don't think it's for everybody. Um, I would say. I got to do some actually some really cool things in the year that I did that work. I bet, yeah. Um, like I was on Navy ships well, down at the base. That's cool. Um, Hear that, folks? That's cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. On a cool scale, it's pretty cool. Um, like worked with one guy who his job was literally to shoot the guns off of the top of the ships. Okay, Whoa, that's, that's pretty so like, fucking cool. As cool as it gets. It's well, pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it I, was I pretty mean, cool. To be fair, and not to not to like interject again, but like, but this is why being an OT is so cool and why I feel like I miss my calling. Because like even the part of the job that I was saying is like not as cool is still really cool. Can be cool. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> trying to save myself. <laughs> I don't remember. Where was I? Okay, finding this job. So I yeah, I was I was just searching. I was like, I don't even know what this would look like, but I'll keep looking. And saw the job posting for a resident services coordinator with a housing support organization here in HRM. I was like, huh. Well, they were looking for someone with either like a nursing background or a social work background. It's kind of like a case management type of role. Like you oversee healthcare services for X number of people. I was like, huh. I don't know. Maybe that would be it. Mm. Um, and it was. <laughs> I, <laughs> I loved it. Um, so started that job in 2019. And I was there until just recently, this past September, when I went out into private practice. And we can I mean, we can talk a little bit more about that after. Yeah, yeah, but right. that's kind of how I I found the, the job that I have now right. and kind of was able to figure out how to bring these two things together. Cool. I mean, again, like, you know, not to, not to just keep repeating ourselves, but it is a really cool position. <laughs> I and, told you. And the thing that, the thing that like sort of surprises me every time we come around to talk about occupational therapy is just how varied it can look from mm -hmm. practitioner to practitioner. So like, you know, uh, we recently had an episode where we spoke to John, John from out, out West and like him using art and like art's a huge part of his, his occupational therapy and, and, you know, the, the communities that he works with very different from, from yours. Um, and you know, we, we've, we talked at length about the like return to work stuff, but now I'm kind of like, Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, right. There's like, there's all these sort of niches that you can kind of jump down. And in, in your case, very much directed towards people with intellectual disabilities and so now I'm going, well, what does that mean? Like in, in what, in what way does your, like, how is your job directly involved with people with intellectual disabilities as an occupational therapist? If I, if I remember correctly, you know, not that I do homework when it comes to this podcast, <laughs> the thing that I, that I recall from the last time we spoke about occupational therapy, I mean, maybe it was like two times prior is a lot of the work has to do with helping people manage and like wrap their heads around the, the, the daily activities of life that bring quality of life. Mm -hmm. what, what, there's a name for those though, right? Activities of daily living. Uh, I, I, was, oh man, I was so close. Activities of daily living. So like, is it, ADLs. is it, is it ADLs 
for people with intellectual disabilities? Like, is that where your job comes in big time where it's how, you know, this person who maybe is fresh on their own, just moved out of their parents' house or, um, or man, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I'll give a little bit more to the, to the initial story. So sure. the resident services coordinator job that I did was, like I said, we didn't like to call it case management, but it, it, it was very similar to a case management role, right? So it was, I had 13 houses that I oversaw the care for each of those people who lived in those homes who had a primary diagnosis of intellectual or developmental disability. And when you say houses, are we talking about like, not Hogwarts. Like, <laughs> that's what you were thinking. You were thinking like, was there a sorting hat? And like, was like, how divided? many wizards are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Here? No, are we talking about like, um, like homes for groups of people living with intellectual disabilities? Or are you talking about like, you know, Timmy lives like with his parents in this house and, you know, like separate housing units or. In that role, it was, it was homes that were licensed by the province. Right. Um, small option and group homes. Got so okay. small option is usually for people who live in a home and it's like, it's just homes in the community. Yeah. Like anywhere in HRM. Um, but yes, they are licensed under the province. So there's certain standards that have to be maintained. They're staffed. Mm-hmm. That's all paid for by the Department of Community Services. Right. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, with that role, solely licensed homes. Um, and sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. It's okay. So, so. Oh, where'd they, what do I do? ADLs. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that job was, again, it was kind of more holistic. It was a lot of advocacy, a lot of staff training. So a lot of rights, a lot of talking about choice and control for the people who live in these supported environments. Um, But through the pandemic, when there was so many restrictions on who could come into those homes, people people who lived in licensed homes um, were literally not allowed to leave the property for months, months, couldn't go for a walk in their neighborhood, could not leave the perimeters of their property for much longer than the general population. Just straight up like imprisoned. Why, why, why was that? We were lumped in with long-term care at that time. So for long-term care, that kind of made sense. Like it was like the perimeters of the building. Um, And so that just translated to the perimeters of your property. There was pros and cons, like we were advocating throughout to not be lumped in with long-term care, but then that didn't mean getting some of the resources uh, that long-term care was getting. The people who live in these homes, like generally speaking, adults with intellectual disabilities are more vulnerable than the general population, mm-hmm. um, typically have more complex health yeah. needs. Um, so that there was, yeah, there's pros and cons. But what that meant for me specifically was that I was working as an OT in a non-traditional role as a resident services coordinator. But then I started being a more traditional OT because people weren't allowed, like allied health professionals in the community weren't allowed to come in to the homes unless it was like abundantly urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you mean that in the sense that like you then had to start doing more traditional OT things like... Um, um, like trying to help 
assist the people with, you know, dealing with this new situation of not being able to leave their property. I think of like one thing, you know, um, you'd mentioned at the beginning that, that we know each other from, uh, special Olympics and, uh, my partner, Maddie and I were teaching, uh, yoga for people with intellectual disabilities. And so they would do, they would have like special Olympics nights where they go and they partake in sports and they go and do, they go to these places and do all these sort of activities to, you know, be social and meet new people and get exercise and do all these things that are really important for them. Um, but not being able to leave their property, then I imagine that all of a sudden there's a lot of their needs that aren't able to be met um, that they typically would have as part of their routine that's no longer able to be part of their routine. So were you having to like do more traditional OT type things to like figure out how to get them those, get those needs met that were no longer able to be met because they weren't able to leave? Um, yes, I would say in that previous role, I did a lot of that anyways. Like that was kind of the role. It was like, how do we, um, how do we support people in living meaningful lives? And how do we advocate for access to services to access to different opportunities that people in the general population typically have like access Mm. to sports, access to all these things. So that was kind of like the general role. And then, but what I meant by traditional OT was more so mobility and equipment. Okay. So like people were, well, declining rapidly because they couldn't leave their homes. People with pre-existing mobility concerns were now not able to walk in their community. Their mental health was plummeting. Their physical health was plummeting and they needed equipment or they needed, um, different like mattresses, hospital beds, wheelchairs, walkers, like that sort of thing was kind of what I ended up doing which was not initially supposed to be part of my scope in mm. the role was, and they needed these they like you were seeing an increase in, in need for these things because of an inability to like just be active and like be out in the world like i would say like not necessarily solely because of sure. but i think that played a, a big pretty part. big role mm. wow yeah. I, oh, damn. I, i'm curious how that um took a toll on on YouTube, I, I like one of the aspects of that that I think of is like, not only not only is that the situation, the reality that they have to live in is that they're not allowed to leave their properties, but also um, by nature of being someone who lives with an intellectual or developmental disability, it's probably really hard to communicate to them why, mm. you know, they're being asked to not leave their property, or told that they're not able to leave their property. So um, I imagine that it would be really difficult to, I think of, um, um, my partner Maddie and I were, were teaching yoga at this home licensed home in, in Quebec, um, for a while. And, uh, we would go in and, and there's like six residents living there. And, um, the, there was a, a challenge sometimes when they were like told like, Oh, like your yoga is going to end now. And then they would, some, sometimes residents, some of the residents would get really upset. Like, I don't want to, I'm not ready for it to end. I don't want this to be the case. And it would be, for me, like knowing that I had to leave and go, I'd want to stay. I'd, 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 I'd be like, it would be emotionally taxing having to leave and going, oh, well, you know, maybe I could just give this person a little bit more of my time. Maybe, you know, maybe if that helps them be happier, I want to, I want to be able to give that to them. Um, but it would be really challenging because like, obviously it's important to also set boundaries and try to teach them about how to manage these emotions. But nonetheless, it would be really difficult. I imagine that, when you're telling them that they're like not able to leave 
their properties and not able to provide them with the things that they need, that that would also be really um, challenging for you. What, what, what was it like? Yeah. Like I said, I think it was, it was really difficult to watch, honestly, like to see just how much more impacted this group of people was Mm. by something that was majorly impacting everyone's lives. Like, absolutely. But like you said, Brian, like that communication of why this is happening was really difficult for a, a, a good portion of people, right? It's like, how do we describe what a pandemic is yeah, yeah, and yeah. why you can't go to your workshop that you go to your workplace, your like wherever it is that their typical routine is, is interrupted for a really long time. And like that routine is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And it got even more difficult when things opened up because at first it was like, okay, everyone, no one is doing anything. Yeah. The staff are still coming into the homes yeah. because they have to. It's, it was a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Necessity. Like, yeah. yes, the, the term of all healthcare providers right. and everything, right? Um, They're essential workers. Essential workers. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Um, but when it shifted and people started to do, do things again, so their staff would come in and they'd be talking about their weekend. And they still couldn't 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 do couldn't do any of the things that they were doing before. Also, although they may have um, this population, people may have intellectual disabilities. They fucking know like they know what's up. They're super in tune with shit. Like if we told them we were coming back for yoga the, the next week and we didn't weren't able to make that yoga session happen for some reason, there was like massive disappointment. They're like counting down the days like they knew exactly what was up and what was happening in my in in my experience of the situation so i imagine that to be really difficult is that just like a, a like a low-key flex <laughs> what that they loved you so much <laughs> no no they just they love everything they're counting down the they days till bry showed up <laughs> <laughs> no but like like, like genuinely they just <laughs> love yeah. and i shouldn't I, I i feel bad saying they i'm i'm speaking to them about like the group that we worked with um, like they were so excited, but they were excited to do everything. Like they were excited to go and play soccer or yeah. floor hockey or whatever. Again, that routine that's so important in, in their, their mental well-being, their, their physical health, their, you know, every aspect of the parts that keep them, you know, satisfied and, and enjoying life. Well, I, like strip that away. It was like us. Like, so who, like I struggled. Yeah. Right. Like, and I still got to go to work. Yeah. I had to go to the office every day. I didn't mm-hmm. work from, I worked from home one day, mm-hmm. I think throughout yeah. the entire pandemic. Um, but still your when your routine is stripped from you, regardless of whether you have an, a diagnosis of intellectual or developmental yeah. disability or not, like it's, it was a huge shift for everybody. And then that communication of why this is happening and why are all these things so different was more difficult. Right. And it, it varied from person to person, like communicating that with each individual person and having an understanding of how they would best adapt to the changes was a huge part of our job. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think I just wanted to point out kind of one thing, Bri, like, yeah, I think there's kind of this notion that because someone has a diagnosis of intellectual and developmental disability, like that they, they wouldn't understand or that they wouldn't be able to understand. It's like, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. They understand. They get it. It's just 
how is that communicated and how do they communicate with you mm-hmm. is just a little bit different. And and also like is it also about like how they manage their emotions around the understanding of that? Like like they they get it, but like also I think that with my understanding, like they really need a lot of help to like process and understand. So I, I think that? that's a side effect of the lack of support mm-hmm. that people have received for their entire lives. Um and yeah, there's like so many things bouncing in my head right now, <laughs> but um yeah, I don't think that's that's not from my opinion. It's not a diagnosis thing. That is a how did we learn to manage our emotions? Mm-hmm. How what experiences did we have as kids, as young adults? What opportunities did we have that we maybe didn't go so well and we learned from? So many people who live in care or live in supported environments have never had those opportunities. That's that's really interesting. I've I've never thought of it that way, but like as somebody who's been on like my own therapy journey, like understanding how these you know seemingly insignificant moments in my past have like impacted or influenced the way that I think about myself or like my insecurities that develop. I imagine that um by the way that like the amount of stigma that is on the um, community of people who have been diagnosed with intellectual or developmental disabilities, the way that like society generally treats them probably amplifies a lot of those experiences of like, you know, like, like maybe not letting them try to do something on their own and doing it for them, which then like signifies to them that they're not capable and all of these other like small little interactions just in the, based on the way that like society treats um, people like this, that, that then go on to impact the way that they actually think about themselves. And maybe not even necessarily small, you know, like yeah, a lot of right. fucking huge, huge things that have right. gone on to impact them. Like, right? like bullying in school. That is, or probably, a lack yeah. of, they got to go to school. Yeah. Or a lack of yeah. a, even a family that is there to like support them. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of times I, I, I have the sense that there's a lot of families when, when they are, you know, when they have a, a child that is diagnosed with something like that, there's a lot of times where those, those kids are just unfortunately cast aside of, of like, uh, we, we can't, we can't deal with this. This is too much for us. And like, we don't want to deal with it. You know, like, I, I, are there a lot of like, uh, I mean, we're kind of going down a different road now, but um, you know, in terms of like foster care and stuff like that is a lot it, like, or, or the people that, that are in the homes that you've worked with, like, have you, have you gotten a sense that a lot of them have come from, Basically, like homes that just weren't conducive to care. Not homes. Right. Institutions. Inst- right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess we, we kind of are going down a bit of a different path, but it's all very, <laughs> it's all very connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of the people that I worked with at the, I'm not going to name the housing. I mean, you could probably find it easily online, but just for <laughs> confidence, yeah. I'm not going to name it. But the housing support organization that I worked for, majority of the people were over 40 years of age who were living in these homes. Um, And it was the 70s, 60s, 70s, early 80s was a huge push when physicians were advocating for families to put their children into into institutions, Mm -hmm. which puts these people who lived in institutions as children potentially from like a very, very young age. Mm 
um, at about their 50s, 50s, 60s now. And it is no secret that these were horrendous places to yeah. live. Yeah. Um, like very frequent neglect, abuse, physical, sexual abuse. Mm. And so to your point of kind of communicating emotions, when you live in such a unsafe environment, like I'll use an example. Someone, you get too close to them, you're trying to say hello to them, their immediate reaction is to strike out at you. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, let's look back at where that came from because they felt super unsafe. And maybe that was the only way or the only even potential way that they could communicate that they didn't want yeah. someone near them who potentially abused them. Right. What was, what was the reasoning for, for institutionalizing um, these kids? It was marketed as it's going to be better for them. It's going to be a place where they will learn skills that other children will learn in school, but they can't go to school. Like like basically saying like, hey, this place is going to be, you know, we're going to be able to provide them with, we're going to be caring for a bunch of people who have similar experiences. So like we'll be able to provide better care because we're going to have all these people here and the resources to help support them when in reality that wasn't the situation. Yeah, it was just segregation. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Now, when it comes to just kind of like fast forwarding into kind of your current work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, we got, we did go. No, it's okay. I mean, it was great. It was great. This is stuff that like, I, it's just, it, again, it's like, it's so it's fascinating. Um, COVID, you know, we're in like a post COVID world now. Um, what, what does your, does your, how, what does your work look like now? I know that we, we had spoken before we started recording, but like you, you just started like a private practice, I did. which is pretty cool. Um, so like, what does that look like? What's your day to day as an occupational therapist working sure. with people with intellectual disabilities without a giant fucking pandemic, <laughs> um, you know, l- looming over <laughs> everything that you do? Yeah. So again, kind of going back to that initial story. So when I started doing more mobility assessments and equipment assessments. Um, it kind of like, if you remember back at the beginning of my story, wheelchairs was the thing that like brought me to OT to begin with. Mm. And I was like, God, I actually do miss this kind of part of OT. And it was not feasible to continue to do my job as a resident services coordinator and an in-house occupational therapist for mobility and equipment supports. Um, it's an aging population in general. There's a lot of mobility and equipment. Um, and so I was like, maybe I'll go it on my own. Mm. And so I transitioned to private practice last September, was working for an agency up until two weeks ago when I started my own business called Flourish Occupational Therapy. 
Um, and yeah, my day to day, my day to day looks different. It's a lot of still mobility equipment, wheelchairs, hospital beds, staff training around how to support people, um, with mobility properly, um, for themselves and for the person. Um, I also do sensory assessments, like sensory preferencing, uh, preferences assessment, sorry. Um, I do do uh, mental health support planning as well, kind of looking at those, um, quote unquote behaviors. There's, I say quote unquote, cause there's kind of a connotation around the word behavior that it means something bad to me. It right. just means whatever you're doing. Like, you, it's just, yeah, a, yeah. it's just a thing. We yeah. all behave, right? Yeah. Um, I don't behave. <laughs> you miss behave. <laughs> um, yeah. So I work with multiple housing support organizations cool. now in HRM. Um, I do a little bit of veterans affairs work kind of off to the side yeah. and, and then I do kind of just private, like private pay clients as well. Seniors living in, living independently or in long-term care. Right. But my <laughs> primary, uh, community is adults with intellectual disabilities. What's the, what's the Ferrari of wheelchairs? <laughs> You know, like it I'm thinking, you know, like so depends. <laughs> like I'm thinking of like you know, there's a tushy which is effective for cleaning your butt. Yeah, but I mean, then there's but then there's then there's the Toto Watchlet 3000, right? Which and is the like, Toto Watchlet 3000 is no joke. So if you were a bidet <laughs> it sounds expert, like a joke. If, it's not. If you were a bidet expert, and I was like, what's the Ferrari <laughs> of bidets? You would totally say the Toto Washlet 3000. <laughs> but what? So like, well, it makes sense that your answer to that um, <laughs> that you already gave Brian was that it, it's entirely dependent <laughs> because uh, a wheelchair, you know, not every, well, not one, not all wheelchairs are the exact same. You know, my, my assumption, you, you, you've got power chair users, mm -hmm. you've got, you've got non-power right, chair power users. Um, <laughs> but then even with the power chair, you've got like users that have different bodies and everybody's body is different. And so your needs are going to be completely different. And, and there's probably chairs specific to those different needs, right? Yeah. But like, Absolutely. if you're like, if you're talking, if you got a chair that needs requires like towing capacity or something, then you wouldn't <laughs> say that that's the Ferrari. You'd, <laughs> towing, can, you'd be like, that's capacity. like, you'd be like, that's more like the Ford F-150. Do wheelchairs tow? I won't say no. Like there's, there's literal like off-road power Whoa. chairs right so that wouldn't like be the hunting, ferrari of for which, hunting right. like that like there's there's so many things so not that i personally know of jared but maybe, maybe. <laughs> so like I'm so the off-road one that would be like the ford bronco of, shit, dude, I don't know, these the are, jeep all-terrain power chairs are whoa these are sick yeah it's like the quad bike very cool. wheelchairs what's the ferrari you know i saw <laughs> i saw uh i saw a chair the other day it, this actually blew my mind um, it was a, it was like a young woman in a power chair. Pretty sure. It was, yeah. hundred percent. It was a power chair. And, um, she was crossing the, uh, crosswalk and it looked like <laughs> I, was, I, I had to like double take. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. It looked like, um, what do you call those things? Like that window washers, like, well, will um, like uh, the lifts. Oh, it, it lifts up. It was lit. Yeah. Dude, this thing was lifted though. I mean, lifted like it's eye level. Almost, it, it was really high, like uh, like above my car. And that's not the Ferrari of wheelchairs. That's like the lifted truck. <laughs> and I couldn't believe. Like, no, it was, I was, that's up there. So what is <laughs> the deal with the lift? What's what what was the what's the purpose of that? They were crossing a crosswalk, so you can be at eye level. It was with them. eye level. Okay, wow. That's the purpose of it. Yeah. It was so. It was so cool. Is that like the Ferrari of wheelchairs? Okay. 
Brian really wants an answer to what the Ferrari <laughs> wheelchairs is. I do, yeah. I mean, what's the fastest one? They're, I guess that's the answer. Um, there, there is... So there's like many manufacturers of wheelchairs. Honestly, like I have preference over some than others. Um, there are manufacturers that are better for power chairs. There are manufacturers that are better for your manual chair. There are manufacturers that are better for your manual rigid chair versus a folding chair. Like there's so there's so many. Ooh. I'm sure there's like like more maybe more cost effective ones than other ones. Yeah, they all just all expensive as fuck. They're all <laughs> expensive as fuck. Um, <laughs> like an average manual folding wheelchair. So like with the larger rear wheels, small front casters that would fold up so that you could put it in a vehicle or whatever you need to do with it. $4,700. Whoa. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at like some 6,700s. Yeah, like, <laughs> a, a rigid manual chair, which is oftentimes used with um, more active users, someone who might have had a spinal cord injury or something like that. Um, probably around six, seven, eight-ish thousand. A power chair will range from ten thousand to forty-five thousand. Wow! Whoa. What would be the difference in like because ten thousand to forty-five thousand is a massive a difference. So like, what's like, what are like the bells and whistles you're getting on like the forty-five thousand dollar one versus like a ten thousand? The forty-five might be like eye level capability is. That's I think it's an upcharge of seven thousand dollars. Isn't that like, fucking wow. lame? How they're like, if you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to feel like an equal to somebody in a conversation that's an extra that seven thousand dollars yeah, is, is that fucking crazy it is oh the medical equipment world is insane mm-hmm. insane you want to be able to put a you want to be able to hold a cup on your wheelchair 40 bucks oh fuck <laughs> like just add it on for free yeah i mean <laughs> right. fuck, i'll art duke of that for you if anybody out there is looking for a cup thing i'll hook you up swing by the studio <laughs> but but so Drill that sucker right on is there what type of like coverage is there for for these? Totally depends. For the group of people that I most often work with, um, if they are supported by the Department of Community Services or the Disability Supports Program under the Department of Community Services in Nova Scotia, um, wheelchairs would be funded through Easter Seals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would with your experience, like what uh, if you best guess, like what percentage of people would have their wheelchairs paid for? A hundred. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, because like if the government is going to... Oh, other people I work with, 100%. Of other people who are not supported by current community services, um, a lot of people, like a lot of people will have a means of funding a chair. Um, If they were involved in a motor vehicle accident that led to an injury, probably through their MVA claim. If they were involved in a different injury, like a different accident injury, potentially under their personal insurance if they have personal insurance um there are there's like a seniors uh wheelchair program through continuing care to help with funding mm. there will be like the odd i did a, a power chair for someone not that long ago who did not have any any means and paid out of pocket for a twelve thousand dollar wow whoa wow. whoa that's crazy yeah not because, uh, like, I mean, the government will give you five thousand bucks for like your Tesla <laughs> because you're buying an electric vehicle, but like, yeah, there's not just like a standard government um subsidy or something that would that would help support that. That's crazy to me. Not surprised, 
Uh, nope. Yeah, not that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, and there's, you know, I, I mean, we, we've got some conversations coming up in the future about that sort of thing, a lack of supports for people living with like physical I mean, disabilities and stuff like that. That I mean, I agree. Fucking crazy. I agree that I'm not surprised, but it's also insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's not, it's not okay for sure. No, it's not. Um, I, okay. I really want to You've talk been waiting for about this. <laughs> sexuality and people living with intellectual disabilities. Um, because I, I think it's just a, I, a, it's a fascinating topic. B, it's a topic that doesn't get talked about enough. And, um, and C, it's a topic that I started thinking about really heavily after watching Love on the Spectrum, which is maybe one of the best shows I've watched on Netflix, period. If you haven't seen the US version, I highly suggest you go see it. I recommend For, the Australian version, personally. Firstly, <laughs> uh, A, what are your thoughts on Love on the Spectrum? Have you seen it? Are you a fan? Do you think it's like, do you think it's a good thing for people to be watching? Because here's the thing. When I, when I, when I first, before I watched it, I was like, that just seems mean. I don't want to watch. I don't want to. I feel like that's just like, they're just being like exploitive, like exploitative in making this like it. And then I watched it and I went, oh, holy shit. This is, I feel like this is a really valuable, really important show. It's, it's not. It wasn't what I thought it was. I thought it was going to be like, hey, haha, let's watch these people that are, you know, on the spectrum of autism or Down syndrome or, you know, whatever it is that they're li- living with and like watch them bumble through dates and laugh in their, like at their expense. It doesn't feel like that. It actually feels like a really beautiful show that shows like, hey, everybody is deserving of love. Everybody's deserving of care. And Dating is really hard for some people. And so here's a show to show you how hard it can be. And for some how, people, not so much. Like for some of the people on the hey, show, some, they're of, some, of them, some of them are the, some, we got some Riz masters yeah. in, in, uh, in uh, Love on the Spectrum. So anyway, that, that, that was my take. But like as an occupational therapist who works with people that are, um, that are diagnosed with intellectual disabilities, what, did, what were your thoughts on the show? I would agree with you. I think I, I personally, I enjoyed it. I thought it, was a really beautiful um, opportunity for people to share their own experience. Mm. I'm sure there are people who don't feel that way, and that's also very valid as sure. well. Sure. Um, but yeah, I I would agree with you. I think it. I think the show did a nice job again of just giving an opportunity for people to share their experience, but also to more importantly share that experience with a larger group who. Maybe wouldn't have never thought. Probably aren't even thinking that. about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of one of the things that I thought about while I was watching it was like, um, you know, like an an example would be like Sabad on on the the U.S. version. Um, Sabad is uh, autistic, I believe, and like pretty pretty like, um, I guess like you know pretty deep on the spectrum. Like like in terms of communicating with others, he has like a a really big challenge with that um you know socially is like very gets very like overwhelmed and he ends up finding a relationship finding finding love with this young woman who has down syndrome and i was i was thinking like oh this is uh, like what what happens when it comes to 
them wanting to explore their sexuality with one another. Like what kind of, because it, when it, whenever it comes to anything that Sabat is going to do, he's having a conversation with like his sister or his mother or, you know, not so much his father was quite quiet, but like his mother and his sister were like there to kind of walk him through everything, talk him through everything. And, and so I was like, I wonder like, do they have this conversation with him? And what does that conversation look like? And like, how do you navigate sexuality with someone who um, may not like, I, I don't know. Do, does Sabad have a, you know, a, a grasp on consent and like, are there, is there someone out there that has to have that conversation with him? Like what does, so, I mean, I know that's a really specific case with a specific person that we're not, we don't know and we're not talking about, but in your line of work, what do those conversations look like? And what are the things that like, I don't even know that I don't know when it comes to navigating sexuality as someone who is diagnosed with a, an intellectual disability? Okay. So this might be marginally disappointing to you. I would say not from that. I don't want it to be, but it is not a part of my day to day. Sure. It was more so a part of my day to day when I worked for the housing support organization because we were advocating for change in right. that area. Yeah. Um, but like the short answer of that is that it's like, there just are no conversations. Right. Mm. Like it's just not happening. Um, and is it not happening because people don't want to have it no. or, or is it not happening because there's just not a, it turns into this whole, like that question of consent. Everyone just goes, holy shit, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Back away from it. Well, that's my my right. question is like, right. can, like, uh, I guess I'll just straight up ask a question is like, can people with intellectual disabilities, do they understand the idea of having sex with each other? With anybody? Like, do they understand the idea of having sex? So I would not generalize it quite so broadly. Um, cause it, it just totally depends on person to person, what their understanding of what that, what sexuality is, what their sexual expression is, what their sexual preferences are. Like, mm -hmm. obviously that's going to depend and their individual understanding of what that means is going to vary. Mm -hmm. I think from a, this is my, this is only my experience. There are, there are, Australia is very far ahead of us. So Love on the Spectrum Australia, I would be very curious. Um, I feel like there was one or two people who were a part of that show who lived in care and didn't live with their families. Right. Which are very, that's, those are two very separate. Very, very different experiences. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we can get into that because I think that is, it is a huge part of it. Um, but... It's kind of like a chicken or the egg. Do they not understand and they not give consent because they don't know what it is? Or do they not know what it is so that they can't give consent? Mm -hmm. And right. again, we if we go back to the people who are in their 50s and 60s who live in institutions, they didn't get sex ed. Mm -hmm. yeah, like, mm -hmm. when was that ever a conversation that they've had other than understanding that they might have urges and feelings and emotions that they have no idea what they mean mm -hmm. because they're never talked about. Mm -hmm. 
And is there like, so is there anything, is there anything that can be done in that case? Like to, to, if to facilitate that conversation. And I guess like, I guess the question is who is the, is it an OT? Like who's the person that's going to go, you know what? I'm going to step in here. And for like, for your own like sexual, sexual dignity, I'm going to have a conversation and work through your sexuality with you so that you can have the, you know, faculties about you to explore that if that's something that you want to do. hundred percent. Like I think OTs would play a role in it. I think their physicians should be playing a role in it. Um, like there's so many people who should be playing a role and can play a role, but are just not playing a role. Yeah. Because what it really boils down to is people are uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like really uncomfortable about it. And, and then that's just exemplified. So you, well, I shouldn't say, I was going to say, I shouldn't say it's different because it, it is, but someone who lives with their family who has a very supportive parent who is trying to foster this understanding mm-hmm. versus someone who lives in care with third party, third party service provider. Right. That person living with their parents is more likely to have had a conversation or have those conversations potentially. If their family is open to it. Sure. If their family's absolutely not, then probably right. not. I mean, uh, again, like an example would be a lot of the people that you see on Level and Spectrum US, they do live with their family. family. And and you you actually see those those types of conversations happening. Where they're, you know, they're they're talking like they the idea that the notion of sex comes up or the notion of, you know, like how to be how to be proper on a on a date comes up. Um whereas I I, I would I would hazard a guess that living in a in a home is, I mean, not so much, those conversations aren't, aren't happening so much because it's, there's not a, a family member there who's like mm-hmm. looking out for their best interest when it comes to all aspects of their daily living. And it gets really complicated because at what point is, so there's, there's always this notion with someone who, lives in a supported environment with staff right so the staff are supporting them with their um with hygiene with in whatever capacity that means it might be physical support it might be reminders it might be whatever they might need to go out into community with somebody um they might need support in going to medical appointments they might need support 24 7 a day like it it totally depends but that person who's providing that support one is different every single day yeah right? right like they're constantly changing yeah and at what there's always a conversation around how much control staff have over this person's life, particularly those people who require support 24 seven, mm-hmm. who are not able to go into community by themselves for whatever reason. If staff are trying to facilitate that conversation, there, there becomes a line of how much influence are staff having over what, that person is thinking right, right. about their sexuality or their sexual preference or relationships or intimacy, like any of those topics. And so like, I, I think of an example that I was kind of on the outskirts of a staff wanted to bring someone to um, Venus Envy to pick out a self-pleasure tool. It's great. Right. Now did the person, 
Right. Okay. So so it was the like, person like I want to I want a flashlight or whatever it is, and uh, or or was the or was the staff like we need to get this guy a fucking flashlight like because he is you know he needs he's right? got some pent up yeah he needs yeah right but like, I guess I guess my question and, is but but you don't know the answer to that we don't know the answer to it right, right. so I guess oh, my right. question is I think the thing oh, it's so complicated I think the like overarching thing is that like is that there are, there's um, probably a large portion of people who think when they think about like a, a group home setting where there's, you know, male and female, whatever, um, people with intellectual disabilities living with one another. And they think like, can those people consent to having sex, sexual intercourse with one another if they wanted to? I think most people, I think I'll, I shouldn't say most people. I think there's definitely a, a group of people who are like, well, one, like let's ask the question of like, do they understand consent? And I mean, the answer is if they don't understand consent, then should they, can they have sex with one another? I don't know. And and then the other part of that question is like, um, how do you evaluate their understanding of consent in you know the way that you're describing? Like, did they learn about that on their own? Did somebody else tell them how they should think and feel about that? Like how influenced are they by other people? And so there's probably a large portion of people who just think, this is too confusing. We don't know the answer. Therefore, mm. it just shouldn't happen. And that's our thoughts on this. Like what? But like, again, like the thing that that the thing that sucks about that is that it's just painting one general brush across an entire population of people. Totally. So then, where Whereas do you like when you look? How at, do you when you look at again? Just using the example because I feel like a lot of people have seen it. But like when you use the example of Love on the Spectrum, specifically Love on the Spectrum U.S., and you look at Sabad. And you compare Sabad to like Danny, man, those are two completely different experiences that they're going to have when it comes to having a conversation with someone about sex. I mean, you know, Danny was, Danny was out there looking like Danny was looking for a fucking good time. Right. (laughs) Whereas Sabad, like Sabad, I don't know. I don't know. Does Sabad even, does Sabad even have the thought? Like I want to, I think I want to like have intercourse with this person. Or is it more so just like, I, I really love being around this person. This is the thing that makes me feel the butterflies. Whereas mm-hmm. like Danny was like, I want to, I want to, you know, you, I don't think she explicitly said it, but Danny was like looking for a hunk, like, mm-hmm. you know, to like have a good time with. Mm-hmm. And so, but, the, but you could clearly see that like Danny has, has that capability. Danny has the ability to like have a conversation about what consent looks like and what does sexual, what does intercourse mean? Like what are the, what are the, what are the working parts that need to be, you know, mashing together to make it happen? Like that, like mm-hmm. those sorts of things. I mean, Jesus Christ, I feel like I should, someone should have a conversation with me about sex the way I'm <laughs> fucking talking about it right now. I don't know, Maddie. Like, what do you like? What do you think? Like, how do you, how do you understand? Like, yeah, how do you understand this experience? The fact that there is a spectrum and it is unique. Like, it's just. It's just so, it's so big that it, excuse me, it, this is what happened. Like I'm, I'm being like, it's so big that it's, it's so confusing and complicated Mm. that I don't know what the answer is, but that's because that's why we're at where we at, we are at right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'll go back to one thing that you said, like just generally consent. So under policy, for Department of Community Services. Like essentially the policy states that unless, and this is the case for everybody, unless you have been deemed as not having capacity by a physician or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, 
you have you should be assumed to have capacity. But that's not the case for individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities. So you have this policy that says it, like it outright says it, that unless this person has on file a letter from a physician, an assessment saying that they do not have capacity to make their own decisions, then they should be assumed to have the capacity. So they assume capacity for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities be. for the most part. Like no, they don't. And the policy and practice are so different. Different, yeah. Okay. Right. So you have this policy that states this, and you have policies out the yin yang around yeah. sexuality, mm. but they're not practiced. Like the housing, the support organization that I work for has one of the better policies around sexuality. And what does that look like? It essentially is stating that everyone has the right to explore their sexuality, to engage in intimate relationships, to mm -hmm. have opportunities. Um, like it was, this policy was developed 30 years ago, right? 30. So a very ahead of its time, I would say, and was used by organizations and referenced in organizations like across the world. But the practice of it, it doesn't translate mm. because roadblocks are put up every meter like what type of like what type of roadblocks the exact one we're talking about like do they really have capacity do they really understand so like but mm. would that be i guess for lack of a better word enforced in so say you're in a, a group home setting and there's um mixed genders living together and two people indicate that they want to have intimate sexual relationships with one another do you mean like enforced in the sense of or do you mean like uh i i use the word enforced but do you mean like roadblocks in the sense of like Somebody who's working there might be like, oh, well, you can't go in that room together on your own or, or whatever, like that type of thing. 100%. 100%. And it's like, well, one, because then like, okay, you have four people who live together who didn't choose to live together. Let's just add that in there. People who live in homes together that are licensed or have, have not, I would say, 99.999% of the time not chosen to live in that home. Mm -hmm. They were given a placement. And so let's say Betty and Bobby want to go upstairs. What about the other two people who live in the home? That would be 100%. People would be like, well, they're, what are their families going to think? What are, what are Bobby and Betty's families going to think? One, mm. do we have to tell them? We tell them everything. Do we tell them that Betty and Bobby right, are going right. upstairs? And what about <laughs> the other people who live in the home? Do we tell their family? That two of their housemates are banging, banging upstairs. Banging up, like what? Betty and Bobby banging upstairs. Who <laughs> who has the right to know? Right. Who then? And it's like it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like you have Betty and Bobby, who maybe, and it gets more complicated the more support people need. Right. So right, sure, right. of course they of they course. need support going into the community. They need support. Um, getting on to transit. They need support at medical appointments. Right. Why wouldn't they need, they need support, support with this? Figuring out how sex, like, you know, mechanically operates. Also, like, yeah. right. like two people at who are at different places on the spectrum, like how, like how do you assess, you know, is there somebody who has more influence or control over whether that is happening? Like, the, I guess, the, the more you think about it, the more factors, they're like, has anybody, has any of the group home workers influence the way that they think about this have like you mentioned before like 
there it's, are yeah, so it's, many it's, factors. It's hella complicated. But but it, like I feel like there's a part of me that's just like, man, there's got to be a way though to like, to, instead of looking at it and going, ah, fuck it, like I don't, we don't want to go down this road and like deal with this. There's got to be some sort of way, whether it's like through policy or through some sort of like system of going, okay, we're gonna like. Again, maybe it's not so simple of just like checking off. Here are all the boxes we need to tick. It's like it's it's a yes or a no. And if there's so many no's, like maybe this isn't a maybe this isn't a bright idea. Maybe this doesn't actually work because there isn't an ability to consent or there isn't an ability to like um to safely allow this to happen. Or um or maybe the you know I don't know. I don't know in terms of like rights, but like maybe the family says like, no, we, we like, we don't want that to happen while he's under your care. Um, do like, would that be a thing? Like, I guess the family, the family has say well, like, right. What if there's well, a pregnancy? They do. Right. They do. But should they? Right. What right. if, what like, if, what if there's a pregnancy? I mean, that's another, that's a whole other thing that I was thinking about too, which like, is like, I want to take it back like four <laughs> steps. Oh, it's so complicated. Yeah. Sorry. Because, Okay, so I, I think we have a major opportunity in ensuring younger people have access to the same sorts of information and um, education that all of us did. And sure, sex ed is not the answer. Like, I don't think just like, yeah, go to a sex ed class in high school. Like, that's not the answer. But how do we start these conversations early? Mm. How do we help to facilitate an understanding of what relationships friendships are mm -hmm. then intimacy or love and then having sex like there's so there's we like jump and we did it right here because we always we jump to sex when it's like do we have an understanding of what a relationship is mm -hmm. and not to say that someone needs to because this is a whole other conversation and this was conversation that we had a very specific example is well it's basically like well are they in love it's like well it doesn't matter yeah it, it doesn't matter i've fucked so many people that i don't love <laughs> like, <laughs> right like it's like well that that doesn't matter yeah but what does matter is an understanding of what that means right right and like it's so, it's so complex. Like I'll probably say that ten more times in this and, conversation. But but it is like but it is. honestly, before we had the conversation, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about how complex it was. You know, I was, I was like, and even then, it felt complex. And even then, I was just like, how? No, no. Even then, I was going. So how does it work? You know, like how does that? How does that? And now I'm going. Oh, it, how fuck? How does it? Dude, the fucking question should have been like, Can does it work? It work? Can it work? Like. Yeah. Because it, what it seems like is that, although it probably can, in if we're talking about like a uh, like home type style situation, it likely fucking isn't, and it isn't for a jadillion reasons, like just so many reasons why, and a lot of it has to do with just a a lack of like the muddy's the the, the water's too muddy for mm. for like the people who are in charge of the care to manage and deal with what it is that's in front of them but you know and like, like i would sit here and say like that's the reality right now in practice is that 
it's not happening often. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But that's not okay. No, no, like of course not. Like, it's not okay. Like you said, it's not okay to just be like, oh, God, well, it's too complex. Yeah. We're just going to throw my hands in the air and be like, frig, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it is so complex that it, it, it needs like. It doesn't just need, need like a, a quick conversation, conversation around. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, they should be able yeah. to. And I think again, these, these layers. So like <laughs> yeah. there's generally speaking a massive feeling of, I need to protect you. Right. When someone either is vulnerable and living at home, like parents are very overprotective. I don't know if I'm, mm-hmm. people might not like that. I say yeah. that, but can be. And again, people are not having opportunity to just like explore things around them and make mistakes. Like mm-hmm. people have so little opportunity to make quote unquote bad decisions. And we have this like protection mechanism. And I felt victim. Like I, I was in that trap too when I was in, in that space more so. And you are a third party care provider who is supposed to, you are being paid millions of dollars as an organization a year tens of millions of dollars to ensure that the people who are in your care are safe Mm. and then they want to go to a hotel with betty Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're like oh my god yeah that doesn't fall that doesn't mold what what do we do here yeah and it's like yeah, we have this protection mechanism that we don't want people to have those experiences, but by not allowing people to have experiences, we're not allowing opportunity to grow yeah. and to learn. We're taking away from their active daily, their ADLs. In this, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't fucking <laughs> say what ADLs meant, but. <laughs> but then there's like this other really big reality, particularly in this realm of sexuality and sexual expression. There was a research study from 2018 that showed that 80% of women with an intellectual or developmental disability. And I, I I was like, this can't be true, but it's apparently is what they found will be victim of sexual abuse before they're 18. Holy shit. 80. That's what it said. And 60% of men. Holy fuck. And so you're like, ah, yeah what do we do here? Like yeah. we want to facilitate this, but then what is happening? Like yeah. how do we facilitate this without in a trauma informed way as well? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like there's the trauma informed way, but the, then there's also, I mean, that to me just highlights the, the fucking importance of at least some sort of educational communication surrounding like what, what sex, what sex actually is and what it, what it should be and not what perhaps your understanding of it has been because of a certain trauma that happened to you earlier in your life. You know, like I can't, like just the thought of, just the thought of like being abused and then never having a comprehensive understanding of what sex actually is and why it's something that people partake in. Like that just fucking boggles my mind. And like, I mean, the, again, the number sounds shocking, but <coughs> if I want to say, like, I, I want, or I say, I want to hope, I want to hope that for people who are thirty and younger, 
maybe that experience is a little bit different. But the reality for anyone who grew up in an institution is that, yeah, That's, probably. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I, I feel like there's also um, a like an aspect of like risk versus reward for lack of better terms around that. Like, like what is so like when you really think of this conversation as a whole, like trying to the reward of like trying to expand the sort of experience for someone who's living with an intellectual or development disability, developmental disability, the reward is like they get to experience um, the beauty of like sharing an intimate sexual experience with a, another person. That's the reward. The risk is like all of these other things that could, could go wrong in this situation. And I think, I think the general sort of mentality from my understanding around all of this now is like the, like is the risk worth the reward? Like, mm -hmm. is it, is what is the opportunity cost of like trying to facilitate these experiences for these people? And like, you know, my personal um, opinion is that like, of, of course it's worth it to try to like have these conversations because try. like, yeah. you know, it's, it's worth it to explore this in a way that like for the people who it will work for and there's a way to make it make sense and understand it, then I think that that would be totally worth it. But the risk, it, it seems like there's a lot of risk or, or at least the public perception or general perception is that like, there's just so much risk. Like it's the amount, like, is that, is that what it is? Like, is this why it's so difficult is like, people are like, yeah, like this would be, this is a cool, like cool idea, but I don't know how to fucking make it work in practice. Yeah. Like I think like I a hundred percent agree. With, I absolutely. I don't, there's no doubt in my mind that it's worth it. Um, but I think the general fear is because of all of these valid risks mm -hmm. or potential risks. Mm -hmm. And, and yet to just to go back to your point for sector, like if you experienced sexual assault and then never had anyone explain to you what that is yeah, or what that was and what it should, what touch should and should not be mm. for you to even acknowledge potentially what abuse is is a big part of this like the training that we did for new staff at the organization I work for was that no new staff would provide personal care because how confusing would it be if you've, mm -hmm. you've never had a conversation around what sex is or what touch is or what intimacy is then you have this person who is there all the time is in your home all the time helping you with personal care touching you in intimate places to assist with personal care mm -hmm. or maybe not right like are we teaching that it's okay for someone to walk in off the street mm -hmm. and help you with that mm -hmm. like that's not okay no and so there's a there's a man who just recently passed away a couple of years ago, I guess. His name is David Hengsberger, and he worked for a housing support organization in Ontario. And he he talked about this often, like his his thing was sexuality. And he was trying really hard to advocate. And I think he did make some strides, 
Um, I shouldn't say I think he did. He absolutely did. But it's just like, again, each individual case then comes back to all these same questions. Um, but he, he really highly advocated for that. Like particularly in a supported environment, like no person walking in off the street should ever come into the bathroom and help you clean up after you've had a bowel movement. If they do not know who you are mm. and you do not know who they are, they should never do that. And if they do question that, like that is not okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, again, it's just like these layers of understanding that we, we learn mm. that someone who's lived in care their whole life might have never learned. Yeah. Yeah. God damn, dude. Yeah. What a complex <laughs> and like deep, like also heartbreaking um, topic. I get, you know, I, like I, I, I never, I, again, I really came into this with like this naive sort of like, this naive viewpoint of like, how's like, what are, what are the conversations that Danny must be having with her parents about having sex with like her, you know, her potential boyfriend that she made on the show. And now I'm going, fuck, Oh man, there's like a whole other thing here that I wasn't even considering, which is. Because I, I think I I really enjoyed love on the spectrum. And I think again, it, it showcased a, and gave people an opportunity to express and tell their stories but that's like a Just small, it's a small, sliver. A small, yeah. small, small yeah. percentage of people yeah. who have a diagnosis of IDD. Yeah. And then again, add in living in care, add in not communicating verbally. Yeah. Tradition like there's so many other experiences that are never talked about. There yeah. are so many people, like I think the general notion of adults with intellectual disabilities is that they're asexual. Right. Mm, right. You have someone who's completely dependent for mobility and is nonverbal. Does that mean that they don't have wants, needs, wishes, feelings? Absolutely not. No. But it's like this over here that feels closer to my experience as an able bodied verbal mm. communicating woman mm -hmm. is still super complex. Mm -hmm. And then. You go down to someone again who is dependent for mobility for let's even use the example of someone who's dependent for mobility is able to verbally communicate. Say we have a good, um, like we, we believe that they are able to consent, but they need help. Right. And they live in care. Who's helping? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like that can be misconstrued so quickly yes yeah who's helping yeah. right like there's it's yeah. just yeah I, i'm curious um like with it you mentioned this example of like hypothetical let's say bobby and betty like bobby comes up and says um i want to take betty to this hotel room for the night like what happens currently so many conversations and i know like i'm not trying to make light or make a joke of this but it's like I've, I've said this before. I'm like, wow, have we ever taken the spark out of this? Right. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. any spontaneity gone yeah. out the window. Like, cause that, that's like, I have been a, 
part of that. And it's like, oh my God, okay, pull management together. Yeah, right. It's like mm-hmm. having a meeting about Bobby, Bobby and Betty. Betty. What, Without yeah. Bobby and Betty there. Yeah. What yeah. Bobby's at his house and Betty's yeah. at her house. Like yeah. what is the what what is the general well, like, like, I guess in an example, hypothetical, like, how does that work? Like, what happens? Literally pulling management together. So, like, a bunch of people and, get together and discuss and it. And discuss it. And it's, like, it's it's basically doing, like, a risk assessment. Like, okay, how right. has this person engaged in sexual acts before? Like, have they, have they had relationships before? Um, are we sure that both people actually are consenting? How are we going to know that both people are actually consenting? Right, how do you find that out? Who's paying for the hotel room? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that's like a super practical part of it, but like, let's add that into the mix. Is that happening at their house? Probably not because again, you have other people who live there. Is that, is that okay? I, I, I mm. don't know. Um, let's say they do want a hotel room, but they literally can't afford it. We want to facilitate them having private, some, some alone time, but they literally, they can't afford it. So Mm. then what are we as an organization going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That seems, that seems a bit difficult too, right? Like, what about the, uh, the example of the person who like, who wanted to go to Venus Envy, uh, for people who don't, who just are just listening, Venus Envy is a, is a like sex positive, um, and uh uh just like really sort of all inclusive um very inclusive inclusive inclusivity is like their their big thing the sex shop here in Halifax um so you can get like toys and and lube and stuff like that there um what uh what did what did that look like like was that a was that a was that a thing that was just talked about or like did they actually go and do it? And and was there like was there kind of follow up on like okay this is what happened and this is how it's going or? Um, I I I legitimately don't know specifics because I was kind of on the outskirts. Sure, right. Um, and that was one thing that we tried that in that that example actually tried pretty hard to not make a big thing like that because do I really need to know? Sure, I right. wasn't directly supporting her. Did I really need to know that? Right. Probably not. Yeah. Um. But I believe essentially someone had a conversation with her independently and just kind of got a feel for who initiated what. Sure. Um, and I actually, I do think, I do think she went. Yeah. And I don't know if she bought something. Cool. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it was like that, that specific example. And this person, again, is, communicates verbally. Yeah. Um went out into the community by themselves for most of their life, wanted some support, more support later in life. Um, So like kind of had this picture of things that people, that person decided for themselves before. Um, And then it was, yeah, more a conversation. There needed to be a conversation of, was this, this, you, was this something you initiated or was this something staff did? Right. Um, Yeah. To kind of feel out, is this something you actually want to do? Right. Which I, yeah, which I suppose is like, is necessary, entirely necessary, like a, you know, a necessary conversation to have. Uh, and that, that notion comes from, again, I think I mentioned this a little earlier, like really realizing the power that staff have. Yeah. Over someone's life. Yeah. And, and it's not something to be taken lightly. Like 
people do not get to do so many things because staff are either like, oh, I don't want to, or sure. because maybe we don't have time to do it, quote unquote, or people just don't want to leave the house. And so they don't get to do these things that they want to do. Yeah. An old coworker of mine, um, and it kind of trickles down to that, that power and control in people's previous experiences. So if you lived in an institution your entire life, when if you said no to something or you didn't do what staff asked you to do, what did that mean? Right? Punishment. Yeah. Abuse yeah. of some sort. Neglect. Yeah. Uh, restraint. Quiet rooms. Like, what did it mean? And so now you have people who are living more in the community, still with staff support, who have that fear. Right. And so that's why, like, it's like everything seems so big and kind of sometimes our reactions to things seem dramatic, but they're coming from really real places. Mm. And so, yeah, it's like an old coworker of mine used to say, church is a big thing. I know it's not what we're talking about right now, but church is a big thing because sometimes staff don't want to go to church. Yeah. And maybe they are, or they are very religious, but they do not want to go to the church of the person right. that they're supporting. Yeah. Controversial topic for sure. <laughs> totally. Um, and so my coworker Don would say like, just the tone of your voice can say so much like, Oh, Bobby, do you want to go to, do you want to, do you want to go to church today? Or do you want to stay home and make cupcakes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's like, Bobby's like, Oh, I guess I guess we'll cupcakes stay then. home and make cupcakes. Yeah, yeah, like, cause yeah. that's what you want to do. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to rock like, the boat. Throw, yeah. I don't want to yeah. rock the boat I don't here. Get fucking I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to do what you want to do. Yeah. And so again, going back to that woman, it was like, is this something you actually want to do? Or was this something that your staff was really excited to talk to you about? Right. Which made you be like, yeah, let's to go to Venus now. Envy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fuck man. Wow. Oh, it's just, it's so much. It's so much. And I, I didn't even, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how like complex it is. I, I also feel like this is like, this is like, uh, a kind of conversation that people are going to listen to and be, just be like, oh, fuck, like, what the... It's funny. You guys got to come back to this at some point. See, I feel more confused after having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah same. But, like, in a way that it's, like, same. you know, it's kind of... What's that? There's, like, this learning curve. I forget what it's called. But, but you know, when you start learning something new, you feel really optimistic and you like, you're, like, oh, yeah, I can... You feel really positive and you think I can do that. But as you start to learn more about it and how difficult is and you and you really understand it then you like drop off on the cliff a ton and you're and you're like oh fuck i'll never know how to do this because you finally now understand how complex and difficult it is it's kind of like me with curling like i really think that someday i'm going to go to the olympics for curling oh, dude but i also have never i've curled once in my life man and all I, the I'm curlers sure, are listening to you right now just going i'm sure that fucking right but this is my point it's like i'm sure that like if i curled 10 or 20 times i'd probably be like oh i get how hard this is and then i'd feel a lot less i'd feel a lot more discouraged about it this is kind of like how i feel about this topic is like going into it i i thought oh yeah like we'll just you know we'll have a we'll have a short conversation and i'll totally understand everything about it 
And now after it, I'm like, oh my God, that's so complex. I'm not sure we'll ever know the answer to how, how to do this. But I guess also in saying that, I mean, it sounds almost like the, I don't want to say solution, but like, the, it sounds like almost like it's just the, the reality is, is that it is so complex that it's got to be an individual thing. Like it, I mean, there has to be like some sort of structure around like how we understand this, but like at the end of the day, it's going to be unique and different for everybody. Is that like, is that all, is that ultimately why it's so hard? For sure. And I mean, I get for, for people listening from other places, like I, I'm very much basing this obviously in Nova Scotia, like, and, and I know other provinces and like I said, Australia is leap years ahead of, of Nova Scotia. Um, <laughs> is that shocking to anyone? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, like I think as a province, when you do a better job of supporting people in advocating for their own rights and advocating for um, choice and control in their lives from the get-go. Like it's, it's just not a priority and that, that is obviously a bigger thing than just sexuality, but that's a part of it. And I think we need to do a better job of looking at what consent actually means and identifying what it means and then following through even when people make choices that maybe I wouldn't make or I wouldn't make now. Right. I'm like, how many times have I fucked up? Mm. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I won't make that mistake again. Or maybe I will. Like, who knows? Um, but allowing people opportunities, because that is the big thing. And allowing people opportunities, even when they live in care. Um, and like you said, having a framework that is supportive of topics such as this, but then allows for a lot of individualization yeah. within that. Yeah. But there's like a framework just doesn't exist right now. Mm -hmm. And the organizations might have one, but then again, there's, is there support from the broader funders, like mm. from just general population? Like what? Yeah. There's, there's some frameworks, but then there's so many roadblocks along the way. Mm -hmm. And like you said, even if there's like a policy or framework in place, is it being followed yeah yeah man uh well here's <laughs> here's to hoping that uh that you know there's somebody out there who has poll who is interested in like having these types of conversations to make change because um it seems like we could use it yeah. absolutely you know in a big way so. I, I mean something you also just said though that that i think is like is also incredibly important and and to like come back to something that we talked about at the start of the podcast is like the first step is like destigmatizing the experience of what it's like to live with an intellectual disability. A hundred percent. I mean the fact that there is so much stigma around it just makes it so difficult. One, two, like that's the source of the root of a lot of the trauma that people experience. And then we've we have made some strides since since like you talked about the the general idea, you know. 40, 50 years ago to, to institutionalize um, children with, with IDD was the right path. Like that's, it's good that we've made some progress there, but the, the reality is, is that a ton of stigma still exists, which then leads to, you know, these traumatic experiences that these people live with now. And then therefore makes it really difficult to even get to having those conversations around consent um, specifically about sexuality, because like there's already so much other 
shit that they have to deal with at this point that it's really difficult to mm-hmm. get to a place where, you know, there's not all these other past traumatic things that need to be sort of s- sorted out first to be able to, you know, be able to have the, these conversations. Well, exactly. And I think honestly, Brian, you just said it better than, than I probably have in this whole time. Like the root of the root of a lot of these concerns is the stigmatization and mm. the idea that this isn't an important part of someone's life. So there is not a lot of advocacy around policy change, around changes in education, around um, changes in information sharing. Like there's there's not advocacy because it's not identified as an important part of someone's lived experience. And I think that is probably like a conversation for a whole nother day, but just like the idea that the general population has as to what it means to live with an intellectual developmental disability and live in care, the picture that people have in their minds of that person is so not the reality. Mm. Um, And particularly not the reality for so many people. But yet, like, it's that they don't work, that they don't want to engage in, in sexuality, that they are not, like, the, the charity model of disability, that they are receiving so many supports, but they're not giving back. Like, all of these Ooh, things mm-hmm. play into the fact that change is not a priority. It's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really good point. Well, Maddie... Um, Thank you for coming in here and, and like confusing us. <laughs> I was more so going to say thanks for coming in here and, and allowing us to like dive into this stuff that is really hard to talk about, you know, and stuff that um, that I feel pretty confidently isn't being talked about enough. So um, good on you for, for, <laughs> for, you know, being, being up for having that conversation. I, I think, um, I think it's really valuable and, and it, it gives me like a lot of food for thought for, you know, future conversations to have on this show, just to deepen our own understanding and, and education surrounding the issues that people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities deal with on a daily basis. Because again, it's one of those things that like we don't, I don't think about very often, you know, uh, there's only been a few times in my life where I've like really sat and thought about it. Um, and even then that's, I don't think is, is enough. Uh, and I am woefully, you know, um, ignorant to a lot of the things that that population deals with. So, mm-hmm. uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking your time and your schedule to come in and sit with us and open up Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's honestly, it was a pleasure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity because like you said, Jared, I think it's something that just isn't talked about enough. And, mm-hmm. and obviously m- my experience in the work that I do is, is solely my experience. And so I'm sure other people in this area have many other thoughts. Um, But I think bringing light to some of the experiences that I've had through being involved in, in other people's lives um, is, is important. Yeah. I really, I find it really um, uh, like admirable that, that you're willing to talk about this uh, stuff too, because I can imagine that, that a lot of people who work in these spaces um, don't 
see this as a priority because like it's so big and confusing that it's like uh well like you know we're just doing our best to like try to provide the services that we're already providing and so it is kind of like opening up pandora's box to really like you know try to understand this and so thank you for coming in and like <laughs> try to work through that stuff with us because it's so fucking confusing but it's so important yeah this uh this has sparked uh, <laughs> likely several other conversations to come so yeah. thanks again thank you That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.